Rabbi, mm. people are out of food. Some have been without food for days, others have traveled a great distance. So, give them something to eat. We're out of food. They're out of food. Is it time to send them home? Well, at this point, they're so hungry and tired, if we send them home, they're faint along the way. You knew they were hungry? Yes, Judas. I can see them while I'm talking. Hmm. <laughs> well, this is a tough one. Where can we buy some bread for all these people? Well, we only came with a little over 200 denarii. Rabbi, that's not even enough to get a little bit for everyone. I wouldn't even know how to calculate that. Matthew and I can calculate that. That's really easy. Maybe if we go into the cities, we can negotiate something on credit. Yes. Yes, that could work. Negotiate with whom? The closest city is Abila, and its entire population is here. It's nine miles away, and even if we raided every house in town, we'd have to find a way to bring it back here, and it would still only feed a fraction of the masses. Can you bring me anything? Surely there's some food from someone, even a small amount. Five loaves of bread and two fish. But what is this for so many? Barley loaves. Two fish and five barley loaves. Thank you for clarifying. This is humiliating. John. He will take care of it if he wants to. A few weeks ago, uh, we began a sermon series within the series talking about the seven miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. Remember, Jesus turned water into wine. He healed the nobleman's uh, son, and then he healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. But this morning's miracle that we're going to study in John chapter 6 is perhaps his most famous. It's the fourth miracle that is recorded is the feeding of the 5,000, as you saw from the sermon clip a moment ago. And for context, it's helpful for us to note that this miracle does not happen immediately following the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. In fact, it is likely that about a year's time has lapsed between those two events. And the reason I think it's important for us to remember that is because a great deal of things have taken place within the life and ministry of Jesus that have only served to grow his fame, which is the reason why the crowd had swelled to such numbers that they were following, up, uh, following Jesus up uh, to this mountainside to watch the miracle that he would ultimately perform. Jesus had preached his uh, Sermon on the Mount, likely a collection of sermons that he had preached along the Galilee uh, region. He had also uh, taught the parables of the kingdoms. Many things have taken place within the life and ministry of Jesus. And John's gospel is not interested in recording a chronological uh, order of the life of Christ, but rather the record of events that help us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do so that it would lend weight to his saving work that is needed by all of those who would trust in him. Remember what John said at the end of his gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So today we're going to read the fourth miracle recorded in the Gospel of John, we're going to read it in its entirety so that we can see and study the significance of what Jesus did and why Jesus did it. This is John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we'll start reading together in verse number 1. If you're there, say, I got it. 
Here we go. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Just a quick footnote, because if you're like me and you've been curious all of your life as to why Galilee has multiple names, it's called the Sea of Galilee, it's called the Sea of Tiberias, it's called the Lake of Gennesaret, or it's called the Sea of Kinneret. Depending upon, at the time in which the uh, record was made, depending upon which uh, village or settlement was most inhabited and kind of dominating that particular region, that's who got to give the Sea of Galilee its name. It's all the same freshwater uh, body of water that is located in this particular area of Israel. It just has different names referencing the same place depending upon which settlement was most dominant at that time. Number uh, Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Just as a point of reference, the size of this crowd is 5,000 recorded men. It's not that they're dismissing uh, the women and the children that were there. It's just how uh, uh, accounting was done at that particular time, usually associating numerics with family groups. So scholars tell us that it's likely between 10 and 20,000 people. Now think about this crowd following Jesus up the side of this mountain because they had heard about all the miracles that he had been uh, performing, and it's about 10 to 20,000 people who are there and they're hungry and need to be fed. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had, they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, given the familiarity of this passage, I spent a great deal of time this week trying to consider a new way to present an old story. But at the end of the day, the text is the text. And what we know about God's word is that no matter how much we read and study it, we can never exhaust the truth that is found within it. And so I'm praying that you gain a fresh understanding regarding what we can learn about both God and ourselves from this famous miracle on the mountain with Jesus. I'm going to teach this by offering what I believe are five statements that can be made based on the truth we find within this story. And again, it's a truth that's echoed throughout the scriptures as well. So if you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. The first statement I would make is this. Sometimes... God will search the depth of our faith to test us as a gift to us. Sometimes God will search the depth of our faith to test us as a gift to us. Did you notice that at the beginning of the conversation with the disciples, Jesus asks Philip where they can buy bread. 
And according to verse 6, he did this to test Philip. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, why do you think that Jesus would pose this question, offering this test to Philip, when the scripture is clear that Jesus already knew that he was going to perform this miracle and turn a very small sack lunch into a buffet that would feed thousands? Why is it that Jesus would do this? Is it possible that God is getting Philip and the other disciples' attention for the purposes of drawing their focus to the work that he is about to do in hopes that they'll see the significance of the miracle, but more importantly, the salvation of the miracle worker? Is it possible that he asked Philip this question merely to get Philip's attention so that Philip might pay attention, he might lean in and learn what it is that Jesus wanted him to know? Because... Here's why I pose that. If you keep reading John chapter 6, and maybe you'll want to do this later this afternoon, you'll find that it is the famous conversation Jesus has with his disciples where he declares himself to be the bread of life. And Jesus says, everyone who eats of me will hunger no more because Jesus says, I am bread that fully satisfies. So Jesus is going to perform a miracle and he's going to fill their bellies. He's going to meet their physical need. But Jesus is going to continue the dialogue later in chapter 6 and he's going to say, but my aim, my objective is to provide the spiritual need that you have. I'm aiming to fill your souls. And I think Jesus is asking Philip this particular question because he wants him to focus on the greater need that humanity ultimately has, which is why we're all about missions. We want to be a church. We want to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that meet felt need. But when we meet the physical, the felt need, we want to do so understanding that there is a greater spiritual hunger that must also be fed. And Jesus is the only one who can provide that. So our friends at Grace Bridge and Master Cares, Carter Morris, Drew Herndon, these men give leadership so that they can provide felt need through those mission organizations. They want to feed people physically, clothe people physically, but they're going to speak to those people about the greater need spiritually. And Jesus asked Philip, so where am I going to buy bread? Because he wants Philip to draw attention to this reality. We're going to meet the felt need, but there is a greater hunger that everybody has. And I think he's trying to test him so that Philip will pay attention. Here's the second statement that I would make. Always, Jesus is available to us, and he is aware of the needs that we have. Always, Jesus is available to us, and he is aware of the needs that we have. You remember when they got to the Sea of Galilee, a large crowd had formed, was following Jesus because of the fame of Christ, because of the work that he had previously done. Look at verse 5, lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Two things about this reality that we witness in God. The first is he is available to people. I would think the temptation for Jesus would be to either take off, to seek refuge, 
or to send everybody away. Listen, cards on the table, and I'm going to be honest with you because I love you. At times, ministry is exhausting. And I don't have within me the energy to do what is needed to do. So I, 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 if I'm Jesus in this instance, I would have been tempted to either take off. Like, I got guys, we got to keep going. This crowd is getting really, really close. They look really, really hungry. It's not going to go well. Let's go, right? Or they seek refuge. Y'all, let's figure out a place where we can duck out and we can hide. Because I would, I just rather they not see me or, or they no longer know that I'm here. Or that he sends everybody away. I'm exhausted. That's it. I tap out. You guys got to go home. You got to figure this out. But that's not what Jesus does. No, Jesus is near to people, and we need to be reminded that he's near to us too. And so I think the reminder for you and me as it relates to Jesus being available is that when he feels far away, now watch this, we moved, he didn't. Uh Uh-oh, amen or ouch. When Jesus feels far away, we moved, he did not. I remember when I was a kid and my parents took us to Destin, Florida for a family vacation. And it was so much fun. And, um, and, and my parents let my brothers and I go out and play in, in the ocean and go play on the beach. And, uh, and, and so my dad's like warning to us was like, hey, y'all, look, stop right here. Look back. Look at the hotel. You see our hotel? Memorize the look of our hotel. Do not go out in the water anywhere other than right in front of our hotel so that we can see you. And so we were like, yes, sir, yes, sir, looked up and looked up and saw the hotel, memorized what kind of what it looked like, the features of the building and whatever, and was like, yes, sir. Then we ran off into the water and began to play. I don't know how much time had lapsed, but at one point I looked up and I couldn't find our hotel. I couldn't find our hotel. I saw buildings and I saw lifeguard towers and I saw dunes. And a lot of people spread out on the beach, but our hotel was not right in front of me anymore. Well, what I didn't know as a kiddo was that there was something called a riptide. You guys know what a riptide is? And so it's like a current right along the edge of the beach, and that current, that riptide, will pull you away. It's one of the ways in which the ocean circulates its current. And so that riptide had just slowly caused us to drift away from our hotel. And I finally took my brothers, we walked back up on the beach, and we were trying to gain our bearings, and our hotel was way, way down. We had drifted way, way far away because that riptide had pulled us. Well, listen, sometimes sin... Sometimes circumstance, sometimes distraction, sometimes busyness, right? Those things are like a riptide, and they will draw us away from what is constant. And so when Jesus feels far away, recognize we moved, he didn't. He's the constant in our lives, and he is available to you and me. Here's the second thing. He is aware of every need we have. He's aware of all the needs. In the chosen clip we played a moment ago, the writers speculated on this. But Jesus actually makes a joke with Judas about knowing that the people are hungry because he can see them when he's talking to them. And that's a funny take on a very real truth because Jesus always knows what we need. He is always aware. The Bible says that he looked up and he saw the crowd. And then when he saw the crowd, what did he do? He asked the question, how are we going to feed them? Well, why was it that Jesus went immediately to how are we going to feed them when all he had done is seen them? Well, because Jesus was aware of what it was that they needed. You know what I'm saying? So um, I, I can remember Mary and I were um, uh, pregnant with Libby. I say Mary and I. She was pregnant. I was just hanging out. <laughs> but, but Mary was pregnant with Libby, and we already had Catherine and Coleman. And, uh, 
and we uh, had a nice house that we had bought, and, and uh, it was a, a wonderful home, and, uh, but God had called me into the ministry, so we were navigating what it was going to look like to sell uh, my business and, uh, and to ready ourselves for what we knew would eventually be a substantial change in income. And so we came under conviction. We believed that we needed to sell our house so that we could prepare ourselves uh, for that uh, discrepancy and change in our income. And, and so we did that. And we, and we sold our house and we moved into an apartment. We got into a good place financially. We were able to save some money and, and put some money aside. And then Mary gave birth to our third, our daughter Libby. And uh, that was in October of 2008. And between Libby's birth and the end of that year, which was our, when our insurance had cycled, uh, our out-of-pocket medical expenses were about $39,000 and change. Well, the money we made that we were able to set aside from selling our house was $40,000. And so what we thought was that God was preparing us for the change in income that we were going to need for the ministry that he had called us to do. But God had given us the money for a ministry. It was just the ministry of Libby Vales because he knew exactly what it was that we would need. He always knows your need and mine. He is available to us and he is aware of the needs that we have. The third statement I would make is this. Sometimes not enough is more than enough when it's offered up to God. Sometimes not enough is more than enough when it's offered up to God. Perhaps this is the most obvious thing to learn from this particular miracle for the very obvious reasons. Again, think about what it was that Jesus had done. He takes a boy's lunch that might only feed a few people, and he multiplies it in such a way that it feeds tens of thousands. And as we read, the disciples are more than a little skeptical about the problem as it compared to the available provision. The first thing the disciples wanted to do was explain to Jesus that they had a math problem, right? 200 denarii. Well, what is 200 denarii? It's, it's about 70% of a person's annual wage at that particular time. So think about taking 70% of your annual family income and having to dedicate it to one single meal, knowing that it will not even be enough to adequately provide for all of those who have shown up to eat. And so the first thing they're trying to do in their skepticism is they're trying to explain to Jesus that they think they have a, a math problem. We don't have enough money, right? As if Jesus needed them to explain that. But the second thing they did, they expressed to Jesus their skepticism about the boy who brought the five loaves and the two fish, which is literally all that they have as being not nearly enough for the masses of hungry people who have shown up to hear Jesus teach. John Chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, again, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? But God defies our understanding and provides in a way that you and I could never imagine being done. Just think about the magnitude of this miracle. Jesus takes a small sack lunch and he turns it into enough food for thousands with 12 baskets of food left over. And, and I actually think there's something significant to the leftovers here. I'll explain. There are 12 disciples, right? And there are 12 baskets that the scriptures say have to be picked up, collected, and then carried. One for each disciple. Well, why? What's the significance of that? Well, I believe that the disciples... 
as the ones who are the first Christians, the first to fully follow Christ. I believe that the disciples as the ones who ultimately God would use to birth the church and change the world. I believe it's the disciples are the ones who need to first learn that God can always bring abundance from not nearly enough. These are going to be the ones that God has entrusted to change the world. The simple can become substantial when it's in God's hands. And I think it is necessary for the disciples to each have a basket of leftover bread and fish, each one, so that they don't miss this particular lesson. That not enough can be more than enough when it is offered up to God. Because the disciples are going to need to understand God can bring abundance out of what is meager when it's fully entrusted to him. And so can you. You need to understand that God can bring an abundance out of what you deem to be not nearly enough when you and I will simply hand it over to him. Just think in the Old Testament about the story of Samson. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson and he picked up the jawbone of a donkey. And using the jawbone of a donkey, which is not enough to fight off people who have spears and swords and shields and bows and arrows, but he killed 300 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. What about David? David is a young shepherd boy who takes a leather sling and five smooth stones and he hurls it at a nine-foot Philistine giant and kills him, right? Because not enough can be more than enough when it's fully entrusted to God. We need to remember that. Sometimes God chooses to use the meager to multiply and do the significant because he is, in fact, God. Here's the fourth statement I would make. Always, Jesus teaches us that God is our provider of what we have and that God is our provider for what we need. Always, Jesus teaches us that God is our provider for what we have and our provider for what we need. Did you pay attention to what Jesus does with the boys' lunch before he gives the food to the disciples so that they can distribute and everyone can eat? He offers it up to God in prayer, and he gives thanks. Again, look at verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them, uh, distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish. When it says so also the fish, he, it means that he did the exact same thing as he did with the loaves. He took them up, offered them up to God, and he gave thanks. And as much as they wanted Here's a little bit of confession time. I need to learn this lesson. I don't know if this is for you or if God just gave this to me, but I know I need to learn this lesson. There are so many times when I complain about what is missing instead of giving thanks for what's there. I need God forgive me. I've been so convicted this week about this particular statement about this particular thought. I need to get better at thanking God for what is there instead of complaining to God about what is not. The first thing Jesus does before he distributes the food is that he gives God thanks for it. And so 
I don't know if you struggle with this as I do, but I thought in case you might, maybe you want to take a moment right now and in the margin of your Bible, you just want to write down a few things that you're thankful for. I'm not in any way saying that your prayer journal shouldn't still continue to have a bunch of things that you're asking God to provide, but maybe right now, in the margin of your Bible, you should just write here next to John chapter 6 some things you are thankful for. I this week went to my Bible, to the margins of John chapter 6, where I was studying and I wrote down some things that I'm thankful for. It doesn't mean there are not some things that Mary aren't praying for God to provide, but I needed to be reminded that uh, God has given me everything that I have. And so rather than complaining about what is not enough, I, I need to be thankful for what's already there. And so I just wrote it. I just wrote it in the margins of my Bible. And maybe you would want to also just, are there any, is there anything right now that you need to be thanking God for? On this Mother's Day, is there anything you need to be asking God to provide, but out of a place of being grateful for what he already has? Jesus teaches us God is our provider of what we have, and he is our provider of everything we need. Remember, he's available to us, and he is aware of exactly what that is. And that leads me to my last statement. Sometimes we can be so desperate for the sign we can miss the Savior, believing that the temporary blessing is more important than the eternal need. Sometimes we can be so desperate for the sign we miss the Savior, believing that the temporary blessing is more important than the eternal need. The last two verses of this story tell us that the crowd became so excited about Jesus' physical provision, which was a very good thing. We're not demonizing. Now, what a, an amazing thing that Jesus would take care of the physical appetite of all those who had shown up hungry and wanting to hear from him. But Jesus recognized the crowd was so excited about his physical provision, they wanted to crown him as their king. But I would tell you, not really. That would have been a false worship. They, they wanted the provision of Jesus, not the person of Jesus. And, and I would say maybe 2,000 years later, sometimes not much changes. Sometimes there's not, there's not much that's changed. It's still often the same for many of us. How many in the church follow after Jesus because of what he provides, which is things like a good family or good relationships or good friends, good standing, good business. But we don't follow Jesus for who he is, which is Lord. I think we all have to ask ourselves this question. Do I want the miracle or do I want the man? Do I want the provision or do I want the person of Jesus Christ? I, I would commend to you a book written by Pastor Kyle Eidelman entitled, Not a Fan. Speaking of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, because I think the temptation can be for us to declare ourselves as followers, but in reality, we, we, act like more, we act more like fans. So we're all about the provision, but not as much about the person. We're all about the miracle, but not as much 
about the man. But how sad is that to think about? Like if your belly is full but your soul is empty, what a tragedy. What if the best you ever know is the best this broken world can be and can give? I mean, sure, we got the bread. Yes, we got the blessing. But the soul is starving. The soul is empty. I watched a 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady years ago. He had won his third Super Bowl championship. His fame was now through the roof. He had all the money that you could imagine. He was the most declared to be the most eligible bachelor uh, in the world. And he was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and he was talking about the excitement and the exhilaration of having achieved a third Super Bowl victory and now being deemed as the greatest quarterback in the NFL and now being named as the most uh, eligible bachelor uh, alive. And he starts talking about the feeling that he had after the third Super Bowl and after getting that uh, trophy on the stage after the game. And he said, I started to think about that. And Tom Brady said, and I wondered to myself, surely there has to be more than this. There has to be more than this. I worry how many of us might be guilty of seeking after full bellies and empty hearts. Parents, it's Mother's Day. So I don't know that there is a more appropriate time for me to lean in on you about this. At the end of the day, if your kids make straight A's, if they can hit a fastball, if they can serve a volleyball, if they can run fast, if they say yes, sir, and no, sir, if they have a firm handshake and know how to look adults in the eyes, but they don't know Jesus, you've given them full bellies and empty hearts. And sometimes I think we can be a people who are so excited about the sign we'll miss the Savior. We're so seeking after the bread and we will fail to recognize there is an eternal soul that is starving. And Jesus is the only one who can fill it. And so when we ask ourselves this question, what are we going to do with Jesus? Here's the review. Is God testing you as his gift to you? To show you a miracle he has for you. Why is it that he asked Philip the question he already knew the answer to? Is it possible that he was trying to get Philip to pay attention? And is it possible that he's trying to get yours as well? Do you need to be reminded or do you need to learn for the first time that Jesus is available to you? And he's aware of exactly what it is that you need. Is today the day where you need to learn or be reminded that sometimes not enough is more than enough? when it is offered up to God? Is today the day you need to learn, like I do, that God is our provider of exactly what we have and of everything we need. And we need to thank him for it as quickly as we ask him for anything else. I know that's what God wants me to learn this week. God, forgive me for my complaining about what's not enough instead of thanking you for what's already there. And is today the day where you need to be reminded that you've been so desperate for the sign, you might have missed the Savior. That you're settling for full bellies, but with an empty heart. And Jesus said that I am the bread of life and whoever eats of me will hunger 
no more. And so the question for you this morning is, what does God want you to learn? It's an old story, but I hope that we've studied it in a new and fresh way. There's some statements we made, some things we see sometimes, and some things we know always. What is it that God is trying to say to you? I also want to take a moment just to speak to all of the moms and uh, the families who are here today. And this Mother's Day is a hard one for you. It's a hard one because you're missing your mom. Maybe this is the first year without her. Or it's just another year where you're reminded that she's not sitting at your table anymore. Others of you, you desperately want to be a mom. And you're aching, begging God that he would provide a family for you to love. And I would just want you to know that God sees you and your church loves you. And I hope that today is a day where God's grace abounds to you and for you. Because it is found in the one who feeds you. It's found in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, we're going to have an invitation. And I don't know where God's message and where God's word has landed on you today. But if you want to have a conversation with staff or you need somebody to pray with you, pray for you. Maybe dads, you want to grab the hand of your wife or kids, you want to grab the hand of your mom. You want to come pray with or for your mom this morning. Or you want to join our church. If you believe that God is calling you to make Prestonwood your church home, we would love to connect with you and to see uh, God uh, draw you into a relationship here with us. Whatever it is, we'll have an invitation and an opportunity for you to respond. Let's pray and then we'll worship God. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for Jesus, most of all. Thank you, God, for Jesus who recognizes the felt need that each one of us has, but cares more about the starving of our soul. And so, God, I pray that we would be a people who recognize that sometimes not enough is more than enough what is entrusted and given up to you. And so, God, cause us to be a people who trust you for Savior and not merely for sign. Help to fill hearts as much as you do our bellies. We love you, Lord Jesus. We trust you. We pray to you and through you in your good name. Amen.